After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne with a rainbow, with a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearl, pearl, or peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning, were burning seven torches of fire, with, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, um, there was at, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in, um, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third li living creature um, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night uh, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, o our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will uh, they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was, was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures um, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, uh, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into, the, uh, into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who, who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a, king, a kingdom and priests to our God uh, and they shall reign on, on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels um, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's the reading of his word. Uh, Thank you so much for doing that long reading. Let's pray together. Uh, Thank you, Lord, so much for this picture of what happens uh, around you and where you are. And thank you that even though uh, we are not in heaven now, we get this picture of what is happening in heaven to encourage and help us today. And we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let me start by getting you to look at this picture, which should come up on the screen. Uh, I love this picture. It's a few years old now. Uh, It's a picture of a room in the White House called the Situation Room. It's the command center from where orders are issued for crisis situations unfolding around the world. So if something bad is happening in the world, it involves America, they gather in the Situation Room to make the big decisions. And this is a picture of the Situation Room as they watched uh, footage uh, from someone's camera on their helmet as American soldiers went about assassinating Osama bin Laden. Now, I'm not making any political point here, just to be clear. Some people think that act was an act of international terrorism within another nation's borders. Some people think it was ridding the world of an international terrorist who committed atrocities within other nations' borders. I'm not making any comment about that today. Feel free to talk about that afterwards if you like. I will not be available. Uh, But the point I want to make by showing this picture is this. The Situation Room and the Front Line, they're both real. They're both real experiences of the same event. Even though what it's like to experience the event from the front line is entirely different from experiencing it in the Situation Room. If you think about those people and what they are watching unfold through this camera on someone's helmet, for the people who are being watched, it feels like chaos and shouting and noise and has anyone got a clue what's happening? All they're doing on the front line is just moving forward one step at a time, a secret mission that nobody else knows about that is unfolding in real-time chaos. In the Situation Room, though, look at them. It's very calm. It's very clear. They know where everyone is. They know the incredible importance of each little step that's been taken on the front line. If you're a frontline soldier, it helps you to know that the Situation Room exists and you're getting your orders from there. But also if you're a frontline soldier and you stepped into this environment, say you could teleport from wherever they were in the Himalayas straight into the Situation Room, you wouldn't really know what was going on. People would be saying things and doing things and using equipment that you're not familiar with because that's from that world and you're in the frontline world. Well, the first few chapters of this book of Revelation, chapters 1 to 3, are about the front line in the world. They're letters to, from Jesus to churches 
trying to be churches in difficult places. And they're experiencing opposition, they're experiencing poor teaching, they're experiencing conflict with the world and with each other. That's the front line of the Christian life. And we'll all be familiar with the front line and its stresses and difficulties in some way or another by just being in a church. But chapter 4, verse 1, begins with a door open to heaven. John, who has been giving the letters to the churches, suddenly get, does get teleported from the front line into the situation room. It's a window he gets to look through from down here where everything looks all like chaos and pain and struggle. And actually, if you read the letters, very little progress. Survival is what the churches look like they're doing. But he looks through the door to heaven and sees the place from where God reigns. He can understand what's happening to him and to the churches. Sometimes, living as a Christian, particularly as they find in Revelation, living in a church family is really hard. Perhaps because you're attacked and criticised. Or when you feel like the churches, some of the churches did in Revelation, they were giving all they had to move this thing forward, but they were really making no progress as far as they could see. That's the frontline experience of those churches in chapters 1 to 3. But Revelation is called Revelation because it's opening the door, revealing to us how all of that looks from heaven, where God rules. Let's be clear, though, this isn't a fantasy. In the same way that that picture is just as real as what the soldiers were doing on their mission, what's happening in heaven is just as real as what we are experiencing now. It's not something we imagine to make ourselves feel better. And just as if the soldier had dropped straight in from the front line to the situation room, going into Revelation, getting a view of heaven, is a bit like landing on a different planet. There are many things that we find hard to understand that are disorientating and difficult us as we sort of stick our heads into that different world for a moment. But we need to look through the door with John because we need to know that what we experience here and now is not it. The view from heaven is entirely different. From God's point of view, it is ordered, it is pur purposeful, and in the end, God winning is never in doubt. And that should help us with whatever we're battling with here on the front line of it all. So let's see, there's two things we're going to see today. Here's the first one. Reality, God is at the centre and we give everything back to him. Great. And there's a little quote up there. I have a colleague at Christchurch who used to work um, in the mining industry uh, in Australia. And she talks about how she used to spend her days down these mines that were full of dirt and dust and noise, and she said, basically, a lot of extremely foul-mouthed men. She was like, it was like heading into hell every day, the heat, the oppression, and the total godlessness of it. And then she would, at the end of the day, they were out in the desert in Australia, they had these 
pod that they lived in, she would like have to shower outside the pod and then step in to this cool, quiet, air-conditioned, clean environment. And she would have sitting in front of her on her table there, her Bible, and ready to pray. She was like, it was like stepping from one world into another. Revelation 4 is just like that. John's just been dealing with seven churches, the last of which basically couldn't really be bothered about God and his glory at all. It's all been actually, the story of the seven churches, a bit seedy and depressing and looking like defeat. And that is a shocking contrast to what John is not now allowed to see. As he looks into heaven, what he sees is this pure, ultimate glory. He sees nothing but beauty and holiness. It's shocking, actually, because we've just heard about this church in Laodicea that are ignoring God, and they don't really care about what he thinks about stuff. John opens the door, and it's just like, they're ignoring this? They're ignoring him? Here, all of his senses are bathed in beauty and delight and in joy and actually in fear. And in heaven, the first thing we see, the reality in the control room, is that there is a throne. From the chaos and failure of the front line, that can be hard to believe, but it is the ultimate truth in heaven. At the center of everything, there is rule. There is a throne, and as John says, the throne is not empty. Someone is sitting on it. Someone is ruling from there. So no matter what you're experiencing today, and people come to church carrying all sorts of difficult things, that's the truth about reality. There is a throne, and someone is on it. Now that could make us feel a bit nervous. People we know in the world who are dictators, who just rule from thrones, they tend to be all about ugliness, uniformity, power grabbing. But this throne, did you notice, the real throne, the true ruler, he just gives out beauty and color and light. His beautiful promises surround him. And it's active rule as well. In front of him are seven spirits, that is seven servants, ready and alive and burning, ready to obey the the word of the one who sits on the throne. So there's a throne, someone's on it, he is beautiful, and he is active. Then around the throne, there are two circles, a circle of living creatures, and then around them, a circle of 24 elders, all sitting on their own thrones. Now, there's lots here which everyone guesses about. If you read books about Revelation, everyone's got a different theory about this. How can something be covered with eyes all over, but also have six wings and be flying? Don't know. You know? When we stick our head into the control room, there are things we don't understand. This is one of them. But here is what it is saying. Creation, as we see it from our angle, it doesn't all move in a circle round a throne. No. I drove past Sefton Park today. It was static. Not moving in a circle. But we know the phrase, don't we? You might say it. You might say it to your children. Uh, Sometimes it gets says in our house, you think the world revolves around you. Might have used that one. 
Now, what we mean by that is not literally that that person thinks they sit in a chair and that we all travel in circles around them all the time. That's not what we mean by that phrase. But there's a truth in the phrase. You're saying to someone you think the world revolves around you, like you think we all should be doing what you say and you should be the centre of attention. Well, heaven's view is creation all does revolve around God who sits on the throne. Everything that is made, everything created, and I think you get these four creatures because it's saying animals and people, all circle God all the time, expressing and proclaiming his glory. Every created thing around us is constantly singing to us about the total otherness of God, the creator, and pointing us to the truth that there's things that are eternal that go on forever. That's the song they sing, according to John. Creation sings this song which tells about God's holy, holy, holiness. It's like you can't get holier than that. He's utterly separate and different, and also tells us about God's eternity. He was and is and is to come. Creation is always circling God and telling us those truths about him. Let's do a bit of philosophy for a moment. This is really up some people's street, and some people hate this type of thing. If you hate this type of thing, feel free to think about football or something for a moment, and then you can come back in a minute. Okay, here is uh, a truth. There is stuff that exists. hope we're all agreed about that, or else I'm not quite sure why you're here. And the stuff that exists... It doesn't last forever. Everything that exists is constantly breaking down to not exist in the same way anymore. It comes and goes. Now that means either something came from nothing, so stuff didn't exist once and then it started existing, or it means that behind all the stuff that comes and goes, the rocks that turn to sand, the people that live and die, the animals that come and go, there is an eternal cause, an uncaused cause, something that's always existed that created these things that come and go. You have to make your choice. You have to either believe stuff just came from nothing or that there's an eternal thing that made everything else. Those are your choices. Now, heaven's view is that which one you choose is obvious. Every created thing is calling out to everybody that there is an uncaused cause, a being who is holy, utterly different to us, and who is eternal, who was and is and is to come. As we're wowed by huge whales and tiny microbes here on the front line, the Situation Room says to us, it's all part of this constant expression about God, who is utterly different and totally eternal. And round the four animals, there are 24 people. They're dressed in white and wear crowns, and I think they represent everybody who has ever known God. Numbers matter in Revelation. 12 tends to be a number that means the people of God, the church. So 24 is like saying the complete number, people who have always known God. And they're dressed like priests dressed in the Old Testament who represented all of God's people worshipping God. And they wear crowns because the Bible says people are particularly honoured 
by God. We are crowned with glory because we display God's image. Now here is heaven's point of view. Creation surrounds the throne, constantly expressing there is a holy and eternal God. And when God's people hear that, they lay their crowns before God and actually express worship to God. They're expressing to him that he deserves honour because he created everything they're experiencing. Did you notice in the passage, I only noticed it this week, creation talks about God. Creation says God is holy, God is eternal, talks about him. God's people talk to him in verse 11. They express worship to him because they see what he does in the world. We are used to standing here and trying to work out what God is doing in the world. Revelation just gives us a totally other angle. It gives us a seat from heaven and says, what does what we're doing look like to God? Uh, we think we struggle to, uh, with this because we can't cope with our stories not being the center. We can't imagine the world where we're not in the middle. This week on Facebook, uh, which I'm an old man, so I still use, um, uh, someone that I knew years ago, actually had sort of had a passing acquaintance with, I'm not really sure why we're Facebook friends anymore, really, uh, put on Facebook this long paragraph about how they used to be a Christian and they're not anymore. And I don't know the story there. There's probably a whole story I don't know anything about. But what she was saying in her long paragraph was, I feel happier now. I'm not a Christian. And so even if you're still a Christian, I hope you'll be able to celebrate my happiness with me. But can you see what's going on there? We can only imagine a world where we are at the center, where what matters is that I'm happy. And we see a door open to heaven that just says reality is nothing like you thought it was. There's one throne at the center. We all circle that throne. The worship of that God who sits on the throne, that is the thing that matters and defines reality. But I think we're all actually used to this. Maybe you walked here this morning and you enjoyed the sun on your face, briefly. Or the bird song, maybe your morning was less peaceful than that. You uh, had all children's noise and shoes and breakfast shoes and breakfast cereal and all of that. Maybe you actually walked here this morning through lots of regret and difficulties, sensing the sadness of the world that we live in. But all of that you experienced was saying to you, there is a holy God who is eternal and perfect in every way. And look, You've come here and worshipped him. It's happening. Creation is revolving around God and preaching to us, and we, his people, are responding in worship. Let me give you another example. I guess lots of people who are here have made the decision at some point to set up a standing order to support a missionary or to help poverty or to support this church. What that felt like was you clicked a few buttons and probably that money silently disappears each month. From the front line, that feels like an administrative task achieved. But the spiritual reality of what's going on there is that creation has spoken to you that everything belongs to God, that he is entirely holy and eternal, and your response is to take your crown, what God has honored you with, 
and threw it before Jesus to take something he has honoured you with, a gifting, a money, something you can do, a home, and put it before him and say, you made all of this and you are worthy of all honour and praise. That is how heaven views spiritually your simple act of giving or sharing or serving. Now remember, it's not a dream or a fairy tale. What goes on in the situation room is just as real as what happens in the front line. You are making a silent electronic transfer. It is just as real an interpretation to say you are casting your crime before God because you know he deserves it. Whether it is giving money, cutting up crafts for Sunday school, moving somewhere in the world to serve God, sacrificing something that matters to you because you want to honour God, that is seen in heaven for what it is, real worship. And can you see from heaven's point of view, nothing you could cast before him would be wasted. You know, there is no crown you could cast before this throne and then be like, oh, the throne wasn't actually that great. Actually, maybe I should you know, pick up the crown again. It's not like that. In heaven, all they do, want to do, is throw what they have before God because he deserves it. There is something, though, troubling about chapter 4, which is why I've read chapter 5 as well. Just the sheer glory of the one sitting on the throne is seen. Creation echoes his holiness and eternity out from him. His people see his glory in making everything and throw every good thing he has given them back in front of him because of his glory. But did you notice, you really don't get any detail about the person sitting on the throne. It's so odd. He remains untouchable, indescribable, distant, even quite frightening. We get only the briefest description in verse 3 that he is like jasper and ruby. And jasper is see-through. So that doesn't help much in the description. You can't see God and describe him. We get flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, which are Old Testament pictures when God's presence is close for saying, you can't get too close. He's like a storm but like the power and glory of a storm, you can't touch it. You can't get near it. So just this, what we've said so far, the glory of God's creation calling us to worship, it's right, but it's still see-through. It's still intimidating. It's still cold. It's perfectly right. God is God. We are not. He gave us everything we had. We should give it back to him in worship. That's all perfectly right. But we in our church have a lot of people who are Muslim background believers. When they were still Muslims, they could have agreed with that. Now, it's worth pausing and saying here, there are Christians concerned only with this. This is the way they're trying to live the Christian life. And it is a bit cold and miserable and intimidating. Basically saying, God is ultimately glorious. Creation speaks of his glory. We should give him everything. So everybody go out from church today and give God everything because he deserves that. 
But we're getting an insight into that essential structure of reality. And there's a truth that even getting to cast our crowns before such a perfect and glorious God is a privilege, is an honour, it's right, it's good. But John shows us the problem with this in the start of chapter 5. He weeps and weeps about the scroll. You see, God is not just sitting in heaven. He wants to do something. He wants to do something amazing. And that's the picture of the scroll. All God's purposes are contained in the scroll. But there's no one worthy to open the scroll. Creation is God-centered. It speaks of his glory. We all owe every single thing we have to God in worship. So how can any of us do anything for him? How can we open the scroll? It's all his anyway. And even if we could, what we tend to do as people is take perfect things that God has made and given them to us to honour us with them and mess them up. Can you imagine if one of us opened the scroll? It'd be like dirty fingerprints over it immediately. So who can open the scroll of God's purposes? Who can enact God's will? Who can take what God has made and glorify him? No one. And John weeps and weeps. For without someone like that, all of history is simply the pointless mess that the front line shows us. Let's do philosophy again for a moment. In the 20th century, there's this philosophy called existentialism, and it's basically so seeped into the world, it's what all your children are taught in primary school, which is basically, we create our own meaning. No one can give you a purpose. You need to look inside yourself and find your own meaning. It's basically like school assembly is existentialism 101, that no one realises. So it's a very clever philosophy. Um, uh, But the existentialist, this bit never makes it into assembly. The actual philosophers said, yes, we create our own meaning and everyone can define themselves, but because we are so broken and limited and perfect, we can never do it. And in fact, that's why most of them are depressed all the time. They thought, it's all meaningless. We, we should create our own meaning, but we can't. Here's a philosophy, everyone. Take it to your children. That's what John is weeping about. Even if there is a God who is holy and deserves worship, none of us can do it can fulfill his purposes, can make meaning. But stop. One of God's people says to John, listen, there is a mighty warrior, in verse 5, a prince like King David, a roaring lion who will triumph over everything. And he is good enough to bring God's purposes. I can only imagine, this is added in, Revelation doesn't say this, that John flips round immediately, gagging to see this champion of heaven. Who is it? This glorious person who can open the scroll and bring God's purposes. And he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The second point, if you're following, reality. The lamb wins and we join in but you can hardly have a more disappointing picture. I don't know whether you have ever seen a dead sheep. It's strange, isn't it? We're so used to this language because we're Christians. Oh yes, the lamb sits on the throne. We'll sing about that. We sang a little bit about it this morning. But we are saying, get this grand announcement. There's one person who can bring all of God's purposes about in the world. And John looks around to see 
and it is a dead sheep. Also, I have questions about the physics of this. How can the lamb be at the center of a throne? Does the throne have a center? Where's the center? Or he and the other one on the throne that we can't describe like jostling for place on the throne? Is he the one sitting on it? Was he beside the one sitting on it? Well, I think all of that's very interesting. What's clear is this. The lamb can be there in God's seat, but also alongside God. As John wrote elsewhere in the Bible, he was with God and he was God. But here's the big point. The great victor, the lion who opens the scroll, he is able to bring God's plans for history about because he is the one who was killed. That's what they sing to him, uh, the living creatures and the elders in verse 9. They say, you're worthy to open the scroll. Why? Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. He is the lion, the warrior who brings God's victory, because he is the lamb, the one who died for God's people. So what in history is worth celebrating? Well, what heaven is celebrating is this that Jesus died for you. Heaven is joining in with this song. Myriads and myriads, which just means like more than you could possibly count, are joining in with this song of praise because the Lamb was slain to save people. I'd sort of think, really? Is that really the very best thing that's ever happened? Myriads and myriads of angels think so. And, you know, I think if you met one angel, you wouldn't start a fight with them. And there are lots of them joining in with this. They think it's worth joining in with this song to the lion-like lamb who won this amazing battle and the lamb-like lion who gave up his life. He is worthy, they say, to receive every honour that we could possibly give. Creation agrees... And the church, God's people, fall down in worship. See, this is where we are very different to what my Muslim friends think. They think, yep, there's a powerful God who sits on the throne. He tells us what to do and we worship him. We say, at the centre of everything is the self-giving love of Jesus for his people. Jesus, who is God and is with God. And what is heaven celebrating? Not merely the grand glory of the one on the throne, but more than that, Jesus' work in saving people. So the worship of God is right, because God is beautiful and holy and he made everything. But the worship of God is called out of us, Because the plans of the one who is with God and is God is to win the best victory for us by giving himself up to death for us. Heaven loves that. They can't stop pouring out in worship that that would be true. Remember I said that thing earlier about we are not at the center of the story my friend who thinks she is at the centre of the story, well, my acquaintance thinks she is at the centre of the story, that could sound just like you're telling someone off. 
You think you're the center of everything. You're not. God is on your bike. But here's the good news. There is a God at the center who isn't you. But everything that he is doing is for you. The God who is at the center saying you're not at the center of the universe is saying, I want to use who I am to save you. The whole universe is singing the praises of the self-giving love. Meaning in the world is that the Lamb was slain, unfolding God's incredible purposes, and we join in by being bought, being saved, receiving his kindness. No wonder we fall down in worship, joining in with heaven, because all of that was for us. Listen, you're on the front line. I'm a visitor to this church, so I don't know what difficult things you're facing there. It's a nice thing about being a guest. Everyone's probably having a difficult time in different ways at the moment. I don't know anything about it. I just know your people. And uh, we're all on the front line. And Revelation says this, in the situation room, your obedience is recognized for the glory it is. And your rescue is bringing myriads and myriads of angels to sing before the God who made us. I wonder as you face, whatever it is you face on the front line this week, and I can't imagine what it is, whether it helps to lift your eyes to heaven, to think about creation calling you to worship a God who is holy and eternal, but when you look to find him on his throne, who you find is Jesus who died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we join in with heaven the song to the Lord Jesus that he is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Oh Lord, we owe you everything and should just worship you for our greatness but how much more are we called to worship you because at the center of everything is Jesus' act of love for us. And we are included in those people of every tribe and language and nation. Lord, how we pray you would awaken our hearts to join in with heaven's great adoration of Jesus, whatever we face day to day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.